0: Good morning again, Nice. good to see you guys, welcome back, and I got a note on our live stream that the, the Cottrells are streaming as they drive through New York, so hello Cottrell family, I hope you have a good data plan, um, I'll preach short just for them, no I'm just kidding, <laughs> if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as you do that, let me warn you that we'll be in a lot of different places, briefly, uh, unlike is our normal practice. And also that my outline will be a, a little here and there. So I promise to have six clear points at the very end, um, so you can look forward to those if you get lost in the weeds in the midst of that. But. Um, in the Old Testament, Isaiah prophesied about one who would come, whose name would be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And then, in the first chapter of the New Testament, here in Matthew, after describing how an angel appeared to Joseph and told him to stay by Mary's side because her child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew tells us in Matthew one twenty-two through twenty-three. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us is, in many ways, a three word summary of the miracle of Christmas. I guess then Emmanuel would be a one word summary of the miracle of Christmas. What we celebrate each year with with trees and cookies and lights and songs is that Jesus has come to be among his people and to save his people. That heaven has come to earth on a rescue mission. And yet while the, the miracle of the incarnation is uniquely realized on the day of Jesus' conception and later his birth, the reality of and the longing for the presence of God is not something that's only seen in the Christmas story, but rather it's a theme that's found throughout the scriptures, from the first to the final chapters. And it's that theme of the presence of God that I just want us to consider uh, in a very cursory way uh, this afternoon. It it would be easy to take Emmanuel and to just think about the the theological nuances and the the wonders of the fact that God became flesh to be with us, all the questions that we have surrounding that. And and there's profit in that. Worship and wonder are not fruitless activities. Beholding the beauty of God and his ways in the world is one of the ways that we become more like him. Thinking all these things makes us more attuned to God's ways. Beholding the beauty of God and his ways in the world makes us more like him. And so often around this time of year, you've heard me read this quote from J.I. Packer. He writes in Knowing God... Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here, in the thing that happens that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the Incarnation. And so we should be moved to wonder, that's a right reaction, But theology is always practical. What we believe has implications in our lives and how we live them. And the presence of God, his nearness, is a a life-changing truth. It it may be that this year, of all years, we are all able a little bit to to more easily sense the depth of meaning in the truth of of God being with us. That, That there's something deep about the fact that God is here with us because of how aware we are of the gift of physical presence. This has been a year of being far away from people. Sometimes we've been really close with some people, (laughs) just those people, but it's also been a year of being far away from people, a year of separation and social distancing. And even when we are together, we have to be far apart. We know that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We are made in God's image, and God is a trinity. God is one in three. Community is a part of who we are because it's a part of who God is and he's made us in his image. As we think about the theme of the presence of God, go back to the beginning with me. Go back to creation where there was nothing but the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And as God spoke and as all things came into existence, God was there. He was among them all. And his universal presence is still here in our world. Colossians 1 tells us that by, through, and for him all things were made and that he also continually holds all things together. But beyond that universal presence that we, what we know now and that we see in creation, we see that from the very beginning God's personal presence was with his people. There was an intimacy with God that was known by Adam and Eve. So in creation, we see this. We see the joy that we have been created for. The joy that we've been created for is found in creation. Again, God is one in three. He's, he is a community in and of himself, which is how we know that God didn't create us because he was lonely. Rather, he created us to enjoy with him the gift of community, the gift of community with him and with one another. We are made to find happiness in being with one another, but that happiness drives us to God because we are made to find our joy in Him. He is the one that we long to be near, the one whose presence we truly long for in all of our other longings. All of the longings that we have to be with people even now are in themselves at their root, a longing for God's presence, which is why the results of sin in the beginning are so devastating. After Adam and Eve's lack of faith and obedience, God, you remember, pronounces a curse on the man, a curse on the woman, and a curse on the serpent. And then we read this in Genesis 3:23 through 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Created for intimacy and eternal life with God, we are now driven from his presence and doomed to die because of sin. And from there, the storyline of the Bible reveals how miserable we are living away from God. But alongside that, it also reveals the extent to which God will go to bring us back to himself. How far God will go to dwell with his people and to be their source of perfect joy. This, this plan of redemption is hinted at in Genesis 1-11, through 11, but the arrival of Abraham on the scene shows us God working in amazing ways to be with his people. And in their storylines, the, the patriarchs remind us of the nearness of heaven. So creation, that we can think about the, the joy that we've been created for. The, when I think about the patriarchs and I think about presence, one thing that, that comes out is the nearness of heaven, as over and over again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob marvel at the closeness Of heaven, the closeness of God. I was made aware of this in part reading this book by Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy. Here's what he writes. Abraham, of course, leads the way. Hagar, his outcast concubine, turned away from her desperate child because she could not stand to watch him die of thirst in the desert. But, quote, God heard the voice of the lad and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, Hagar, what is wrong? Don't be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy there. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Some years later, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. Quote, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, don't touch the boy. In such passages, heaven is never thought of as far away, in the clouds perhaps, or by the moon. It is always right here, at hand. Jacob on the run, asleep in a ditch on his pillow of stone, saw the earth and heaven connected by a passageway with angels coming and going, and the Lord himself standing beside him. He awoke in awe saying, God lives here. I've stumbled into his home. This is the awesome entrance of heaven. Though we may feel alone and far from God, he is near us. He is ever and everywhere present. And for his people, he is always ready to help. One of the greatest lies that we can believe is that we are alone. God in Christ is always near to his children. Creation tells us the joy we've been created for. The patriarchs remind us of the nearness of heaven. From the patriarchs, we move into the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and let's just lump in the kings there with them. And, and there in that section, one thing we can draw out is God's desire to be in the midst of his people. God's desire to be in the midst of his people. Exodus 25, 1-8. through 8, The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for, me, take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's rams skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And take all of that, God, God says to Moses, take all of that and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Thus God having rescued his people and brought them out of slavery unto himself, he now initiates the sacrificial system and he makes a way for his holy presence to be among his people. He does it himself. He takes the initiative. The tabernacle and later the temple announce that God is in the midst of those who he calls by his name. And yet over and over again, we find that the sin of the people causes separation from God. God is near to us, but he's also far from us because of our sin. He's right near the people of Israel. He's in the Holy of Holies, but no one can enter there on their own. He's in the temple, but no temple can hold him. We've seen recently in the period of the exile too how much sin separates us from God's presence, but also how there is still hope. Hope found in God's loving and persistent pursuit of His people. I think that's what the exile tells us. It talks about God's loving and persistent pursuit of His people. If you and I were God, we would have given up at the exile, I think, if not long before. But God did not. He didn't forsake His people in Persia. He worked through Mordecai, he worked through Esther, and he saved them. He would not leave them in Babylon, but he moved in the hearts of foreign kings so that they would send his people home. Though they had rebelled and run, he continued to chase after them. In her retelling of the story of the prodigal son, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this, right at the very end, she says, Jesus told them, God is like the dad who couldn't stop loving his boy, and people are like the son who said, does my dad really want me to be happy? Jesus told people this story to show them what God is like and to show people what they are like so that they could know however far they ran, however well they hid, however lost they were, it wouldn't matter because God's children could never run too far or be too lost for God to find them. And so we arrive back at Matthew 1 and Luke 2 and the story of Christmas, don't we? Where God's plan to be among his people takes this dramatic turn and God becomes a human being. He's born as a baby to humble parents in some forgettable town. Why? So that he could be with us and so that he could draw us back into his presence. And not just into his presence, he does something even more amazing not just into his presence, not just to be near to us, but to make us his family. Paul writes about the incarnation in Galatians 4, 4-7. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that what? So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Of course, we know that it wasn't just the incarnation and the perfect life of Jesus that saved us and brought us near. Our sin still causes that separation between us and God. And so Jesus brings us to the Father, how? By becoming the object of God's wrath. By, be, by being in some mysterious way separated from the Father. Jesus is separated so that we can be brought near. That's what Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. As we turn from sin, the sin that keeps us from God's presence, and as we trust in Jesus, the one who came for us from the very presence of God, we are drawn back into God's presence and we come as children. And not only that, but the New Testament speaks of a nearness that the patriarchs could never imagine. Forty days after Jesus had gone back to the Father, he sends the Spirit. And through the sending of the Spirit, we are now indwelt by the very Spirit of God. He is with us. We are God's temple here on earth because Jesus came and dwelt among us and died for us. And yet that's not even all. Because Revelation speaks of an even greater hope, doesn't it? Revelation speaks of the hope of the heavenly city. The hope of the heavenly city. In words that hardly need any explanation, in the second to last chapter of the Bible, something greater than Eden is seen. John writes this, Revelation 21, 1-4, through 4, the vision that he saw. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and God himself will be with them as their God. And what's the result? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What we have been made for, what we have lost, And what God has been seeking to restore will be fully realized on the final day when God comes and he dwells with us. Christmas Christmas is summed up in the words, God with us. His presence with us is, is what we are to pursue with all that we have. But what does that mean? What does it mean to pursue God's presence? Let me take our cue from the the storyline of the Bible that we just walked through and give you six brief thoughts to meditate on as you think about pursuing God's presence. To pursue God's presence is to, number one, remember the joy we have been created for. How do we pursue God's presence? By remembering the joy we have been created for. All other joys, this is a season of joy, but all other joys that we have Joys in gifts and, and in food and in, and in people. They remind us that we are made to be with God. And joy is found as we would draw near to Him. So let all the joys of this season remind you of the joy that you've been created for, which is nearness to God. To pursue God's presence is to remember the joy we've been created for. Second, it's to allow our sin to be revealed. How do we pursue God's presence? By allowing our sin to be revealed. Sin separates us from God, and to ignore it is to never remedy the separation. Rather, to admit it and to confess it and to seek God's forgiveness brings us back into His presence. It draws us to Him. It brings us near once more. To pursue God's presence, remember the joy you've been created for. Allow our sin to be revealed. Three, marvel at His loving pursuit of His people. Marvel at His loving pursuit of His people. We saw this in the Exodus, but just consider the whole plan of redemption. Consider how how Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament and how he will bring about the restoration of all things for his glory and know that he has done it all because of his great love for his children. Marvel at that. A fourth way to pursue God's presence, worship Jesus as the only Savior who can bring us near to God. Worship Jesus as the only Savior who can bring us near to God. The miracle of Christmas attests to the fact that there was no other way. There was no other way but through Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection for us to be brought back to God, for us to be reconciled with God, for God to be able to be with us. There was no other way. Jesus is the only Savior, and therefore pride is excluded, and Jesus alone is glorified, and we worship him for that. To pursue God's presence is to remember the joy we've been created for. It's to allow our sin to be revealed, to marvel at his loving pursuit of his people, to worship Jesus as the only Savior who can bring us near to God. Five, it's to follow the Spirit's promptings to draw close to God. It's to follow the Spirit's promptings, and the Spirit is always prompting us to draw near to God. When we resist the Spirit, we are pushing away from God. God is with us by His indwelling Spirit, and when we, when we quench Him, we push God away. And so we cannot ignore God's leading in us through His Spirit to come close to Him. And so how do we hear the Spirit? Well, we devote ourselves to the Word and prayer and to other disciplines. God speaks through His Word, He speaks through prayer. He he speaks through all the other disciplines that we can practice so that we can draw close to Him. So we devote ourselves to those things. We devote ourselves to God's people. God speaks through His people. We devote ourselves to to the, the fellowship here so that we can hear from God. And we're devoted to love for others. God speaks through us and to us as we love one another. Pursuing God's presence is to follow the Spirit's promptings to draw close to Him. And sixth, look with expectation to the fullness of joy that we are longing for. Look with expectation to the fullness of joy that we are longing for. This has been something we've been trying to think about here in this Advent, that we do not only remember the first advent of Jesus, but we're looking forward to the second advent. We're realizing that he has started something and that it's, it's coming to fruition on that day when he returns and when he judges all and when things are made right. The deepest joy we, we know now and the closest that we might feel to the Father is nothing compared to what is going to be revealed on the last day. And so let that truth keep you from despair. If you don't feel like things are the way they're supposed to be now or that you're not as close to the Father as you'd like to be now, it's true. And <laughs> you never will be until the last day. But Paul encourages us in Second Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christmas is about the fact that God is with us. Jesus has come. He is with us now. And he will come again. So that where he is, we may also be. And in that moment, our joy will be full. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us. Father, we look for joy in so many things. Help us to find it only and finally in You. We try to hide our sin, Lord. Let Your Spirit reveal it so that we can be made right with You and know Your forgiveness. Would fill us with wonder at how You have pursued us in love. Fill us with wonder and worship of Jesus who has come to bring us near to You. Awaken us, Lord, to Your Spirit's promptings that we would draw close to You. Help us not to quench Him but to listen to him and seek him out. And Lord, fill us with a great expectation for that coming day, a day where our joy will be full. Help us not to lose heart in the present, but to remember, Lord, that you are working and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you that you are with us now. And thank you for the hope that you will come again.